The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Yeah, so welcome. Welcome. This sort of welcoming yourself into the moment. Getting settled. Yeah. And maybe even, you know, orienting to your space, wherever you are, looking around. sort of helping your your mind and body acknowledge being here in this moment, in this place. Letting the eyes see, letting the body feel. Just here, right here. Hearing the sounds. I find that when I'm starting to get that alignment between the body and the mind and oriented to here, it's almost like there's more substance, more gravity, more weight to my body. I'm just noticing if there's a shift that starts to happen for you and how that is for you. The settling, landing, arriving. And as you do arrive, noticing what you find in the body here. What are you aware of? Can you feel where your hands are touching each other? Maybe noticing your neck and shoulders. Seeing if the body would benefit from lifting the shoulders up or pulling them back, stretching open the chest. Hmm. Taking a few deeper breaths.
And during your meditation tonight, just paying particular, kind of a gently curious attention to areas where there's some ease or letting go. Just noticing it may be fleeting. Maybe it's a little shy. So when you turn your attention toward it, it dissipates. Maybe it warms up when you attend, broadens, expands. You can tune into the breath and notice just the change even there of ease and release and the whole process of breathing in and then the transition to breathing out. It might be certain parts of the breath that feel like a letting go or a easing up that happens. Just sort of gently inviting the mind to rest in those little moments or pockets of ease when they're there.
for however long they're there. You may be aware of a constant sort of tensing and relaxing, kind of a, like a tide moving in and out. Or you might also be aware of a broader sense of ease. It's allowing the breath to just sort of flow in and out. And every just once in a while, just sort of dropping in the question, where is their ease? Where is there a sense of letting go, resting? Could be in the toe.
And the ease may come and go, or maybe there's just a lot of tension, stress or tightness, and that's that can be seen and held in awareness. You don't need to try and change anything. See if you can just notice whatever is there with the ease or the tension. Being open to it all as best you can. You might also be curious about um, whether there's ease in the body, in the mind, or both.
Just taking the last few minutes of the meditation to tune into the relationship between ease and being aware of it. Is it like a cat that wants to be pet and it kind of comes closer, purrs, or like a shy animal that when it's seen sort of hides? How does the ease respond to being seen? How does the mind respond to ease? So before um, Kim introduces herself and gets us started, just to take a moment to see if there's anything you want to share about what you noticed in your meditation, about, you know, how were you able to notice ease, where, what happened when you noticed. You both have microphones, so ideal. Um, 
I feel like for me, being at ease is very unnatural. And my like baseline state is usually like anxious. Um, but I feel like it was helpful. Like, I feel like you kind of added in like little reminders along the way, and it did help me like just try to like ease my body at first and let that take me to a place where I'm like not super stressed out. And I tried to think of like situations in the past or moments where I did feel fully at ease like sitting at a bonfire or like watching a movie things like that that kind of helped me like remember what it feels like to be in that state so and um did you happen to notice any moments here in the moment that you felt ease where you were aware of actually experiencing it now Yeah, sometimes like just remembering can help change what we're feeling. Or maybe you were more aware of what was happening in your mind than in your body. Do you have any? I was trying to be like it's a China like the body scan uh-huh. kind of um that kind of helps me like feel more present, I guess, but I don't know if I don't know if I know what it feels like to be fully at ease. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I... Yeah, it is. It's on. Yeah, so I don't know if I, if I was. Yeah. No, you don't need to be fully at ease. There can be little pockets of ease, but that's great. Thank you for sharing. How about you, Michael? Um, I think for myself, I've become more accustomed to getting into the routine of meditation. When I first started, I, I felt like I was harder on myself if I would think of something a bird or a ball or something come into my mind, I would kind of um, reprimand myself. Like, oh, we're supposed to be uh, just focusing on the breath. And so now things will still come into my mind, but I'm not as hard on myself. So now I question, is it working? <laughs> am I am I, um, am I, letting down my guard or whatnot? Um, so I, I notice, like, you know, sometimes I'll catch myself being a little bit more mindful. And I think, oh, it is working, but mm-hmm. I'm still cautiously optimistic. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. You want to respond, Kim, or just shift whatever you want to do? just say that um, for many people ease is an acquired taste and it is um, common to feel like in fact this is going to be kind of a theme running through I think what both Tanya and I are going to say is that we're not so accustomed to noticing the ease because we're always much more tuned to noticing what's wrong or the tensions or the problems or the possible threats and all the things that come into the mind. And it can be something of a surprise that on this path, um, noticing ease and attuning to it and even appreciating it um, is actually a big part of it. (laughs) And 
So that's what we're exploring this evening, actually, is this um, next of the Four Noble Truths. Shall we just get into that? Okay. I know that neither of you know me, so I'll say that um, I'm a teacher here at IMC also, and I was very delighted to be invited by Tanya to be here for part of this series. This is a wonderful series that's being offered with Tanya each week and Sandra, and then I just get to slip in for the best night about freedom. I feel so honored to be here tonight. So um, so this Four Noble Truths that we're talking about this month, um, sometimes the Four Noble Truths are called the teachings special to the Buddhas. It's like, yeah, you know, a lot of people teach meditation or they teach relaxation or they teach self-awareness, you know, all these different terms. But these Four Noble Truths are said to be kind of the essence of what, what is offered in this particular set of teachings. And I like them very much because they can be comprehended pretty well at a top level. There's nothing esoteric about any of these truths. Um, and we'll talk more about this word truth. Um, but also, each one of them goes very deep and you know, could, could be unfolded over a whole lifetime to understand any one of them, even though we can also get it at a top level. So each of the four uh, has a task that's associated with it. So we've talked about the first noble truth a couple weeks ago, the truth of dukkha. And the task for that one is that it's to be understood you know, we're to comprehend what it is that this is. Of course, we think at a top level, yeah, I get it. And we do. You know, we know about stress. We know about struggle. We know about pain, grief, um, anxiety, all the things that uh, cause us difficulty in our life. And those are part of dukkha. Um, but do we know it thoroughly? So the task of this truth to, you know, to comprehend or to understand dukkha um, we need to really investigate carefully, you know, where is that coming from? What are all the different forms of dukkha? Are there things that I think are totally acceptable and normal in my life that are actually stress and dukkha? <laughs> Short answer is yes. Um, so we're asked to look again, to look again at what we're calling suffering and see more carefully what it is. And if we do that, we might begin to see more than just our initial impression. So we might sort of broaden our perspective to see what is also present when there's dukkha. That's one of the questions that the Buddha asked. You know, what is here alongside dukkha? Every time I feel stressed or or I'm struggling in some way, what else is here? Usually we're so focused in on the difficulty and what I'm going to do about it and how horrible it is that we don't broaden the perspective to see that every time there's dukkha, there's also craving or clinging. That's what was talked about last week. That's what, um, so the Buddha named craving or tanha as something that is present along with dukkha. So it's, this is the truth of the arising of dukkha. When dukkha arises, there's one of these also there. You don't have to believe me. You can just check for yourself uh, in experience. And so um, the task for this second noble truth is to abandon it. Sandra talked last week very nicely about the three kinds of craving, craving for sensuality, craving for 
becoming and craving for non-becoming. And those sound a little bit technical, but again, we can understand from our own life. We can feel when we're grasping after things or getting caught up in things or getting obsessed by things or really wanting something. There's a a sort of uh, a grasp, a grip associated with that, and that's the craving. And so the, the task of abandoning that or ending it in some way not so simple, but that's um, that's the aim. So when we learn something about abandoning these three kinds of craving, even temporarily, then we can experience the ending or the cessation of dukkha, of craving. So that is the third noble truth. So the third noble truth states that the end of dukkha, the cessation of this suffering, is the same actually as letting go of the craving. We're going to release the cause or the cofactor, and that is what's going to help us um, get through to the end of suffering. So this is the task: is to realize, to realize the cessation. And we'll talk more about this in a moment. That will kind of unfold that over today. What does it mean to realize the end of suffering? So then the fourth noble truth, which will come up next week, but I just want to give a brief overview along this line of the tasks, is to um, is the Eightfold Path. It's that there is a, a path that leads to the cessation of suffering. There's a way to get from here to there. And that task um, is to cultivate this path. So again, it's something that we can start on right away, but can also take a whole lifetime <laughs> to do the Eightfold Path. I don't know, are you done with the Eightfold Path yet? No, no, me neither. So it's a, it's a long one. So I found this lovely quote from Ajahn Suchito about practice of the Four Noble Truths. The practice of the Four Noble Truths does not suggest a process of someone becoming enlightened. It's more that a particular viewpoint is sustained and understanding arises through it. The viewpoint is a focus upon dukkha in an objective, dispassionate way. So when the intention is to penetrate the experience of dukkha, we could also say understand dukkha, attention gathers onto that feeling and investigates it. This leads to a powerful insight because it reveals that dukkha is structured, created, and not absolute, and therefore possible to be dismantled or not created. So that's what we're talking about here. Today we're going to look at this third noble truth, the ending of dukkha. But I just want to pause for a moment to acknowledge we've made it to the good news. We had dukkha, we had craving, you know, all these things that are kind of like, ugh. But now we've gotten to the part, oh, it can end. There can be an end to this. It's not all about suffering. There's freedom, there's peace. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And I'll start us off, and then um, Tanya's going to have a few things to say also about this third noble truth. So when you hear this phrase, the end of dukkha, you might think immediately that you know what that means. So surely, surely the end of dukkha would mean my body stops hurting and is functioning correctly. All the people in my life who do things that I don't want them to do will start doing all the things that I want them to do. Um, My work will be non-stressful, and they'll start doing things the way I think that that we ought to do them. Uh, And the world will stop being so insane and cruel, 
and society will start heading in the direction that's beneficial for all. That would be the end of suffering. Right? (laughs) So do you see a theme here? Is that our idea of the end of dukkha is mostly about things going as we want them to. That would be our idea. At some level, we really believe this because that's, that we really believe maybe that that's even what's required for us to be happy. We certainly put enough energy into getting all those things to be true. That's why we continually work toward them. And it's not a bad wish, the wish for health, the wish for good relationships, for ease, for world peace. Those are all good things to want. Um, But if we consider that there are maybe 8 billion versions of these things, like how the world should be, how things should be, I don't know, is it reasonable that that's going to come about? Actually? Really? So, the Buddha did take our wish seriously for happiness and a good life. He, he wanted us to have that. But he essentially took that wish that he knows is in everybody's heart and he realigned it with something might, that might actually be achievable. That's the brilliance. So by noticing that suffering always comes along with grasping, for example, he suggested that we let go of the grasping. It's brilliant, right? If we let go of the grasping, then we wouldn't have the dukkha. So this, um, you know, this is much more in the realm of what we can influence. We don't have exact control, but we can at least influence this. I'm pretty confident that there's no way to fix all the other people and conditions in the world those things are really not in my personal control. Now, just to head off one possible objection that comes up at this point, and you'll talk about this more through the rest of the series, that doesn't mean that we just blandly, blindly accept everything as it is. That wouldn't be happiness either. It's more subtle than that. So that's what we're starting to explore today. So we can try to release in our heart this immediate condition for dukkha, this grasping that we have, this desperate wanting that we struggle with. So we have this task that we're supposed to realize something about the end of suffering. So I've noticed that the word realize has two different meanings. Um, One is to, to recognize, to come to understand something like I just realized that the ceiling in this room is over 20 feet tall. You know, that would be a reasonable statement. I didn't just realize it, but one could. Um, and then realize can also mean to make real, to manifest, to actualize, to make it real. And I would suggest that both of them are meant in this case of freedom from dukkha, the end of suffering. So we'll start with the first one. You know, this this interesting that that if we're supposed to realize the cessation of dukkha, there's something there that we're supposed to see, something that we're supposed to recognize. Do we actually recognize the end of dukkha? That's actually a really interesting question. It's quite easy to see the dukkha, at least some of it. Um, people are very happy to talk about their suffering. And it's very rare that somebody can't say something about what's challenging for them. But when some instance of suffering ends, even a small one, uh, we often don't really take that in completely. 
So, for example, like when a noise is going on um, and then it ends, like a sound that's irritating to us and then it ends, we might have a moment where we say, finally, <laughs> something like that. But then we rush on to the next thing. You know, we, won't, we don't really take in the feeling of ease from increased silence. And when we're, you know, when we're frustrated or rushed, there's dukkha in that. But when that resolves, we tend to just move on to the next thing. We don't really take that in. So Tanya's going to talk more about this. I won't say more about that. She's going to talk more about our tendency not to notice what is easeful and not to really take that in. So there are also, I mean, I talked about some, mentioned some everyday instances of something challenging ending. There are also ways in which we have really deep releases along the Dharma path. And these are easier to notice, you know, when the mind or the heart really lets go of something. But getting to the point where we would have one of those releases takes some practice. It takes cultivating mindfulness, uh, learning about our own body-mind system, such that we can move toward letting go. So at some point we'll understand what this Dharma release means. It's kind of a non-volitional opening up or a letting go of something that was being grasped. We can feel it. We can really feel the craving and the clinging coming, coming to an end. So there's something to see. There's something to realize in the end of in this third noble truth, the end of suffering. So I tried to think about an example of how how insight works in this practice. You know, how how is it that we're going to experience this end of suffering or end of something? And I I came up with an example that I don't know if it's going to work or not, but check it out. Um, So you guys are so young. Do you remember these... um, those old monitors that were called cathode ray tubes, CRTs, they're like, um, uh, they're like old-style televisions. They're like boxes. So instead of being flat like Tanya's, it would be like a whole, it would have like a, some depth to it. So anyway, the, all the screens used to be like that. And the lo- they worked by having electrons firing at a phosphor screen on the front, and it made, it made the image. You don't have to worry about that. But the big ones had three different um, sections to them, essentially. But you wouldn't know that. If you just looked at the screen, it looked fine. They, they, I mean, the technology was great. The image looked perfect. But if you knew um, that, there were, that there were three different sections to the screen, if you looked very carefully one-third of the way down and two-thirds of the way down, you could see a tiny little black line just tiny. I mean, you have to know that it was there in order to see it. But once you checked out on a screen and you really looked and you found those two black lines, you couldn't unsee them. You know, you'd seen them. You can't unsee them. So you could go back. You could relax your eye. You could, you could enjoy the, the full image again. But anytime you wanted, you could find those two little lines on these old-style screens. So my, my theory is that cessation is like this. So you have to know what to look for, and then you have to really look. Um, Dharma practice does take considerable sustained effort, as you're already finding from practicing meditation. But if you keep looking, there will come a moment where you can see a gap. You can see a little gap in experience. And once you've seen something like that, you can't unsee it. So there's a way in which if this gap that you see, which I'm calling cessation, If it's deep enough, 
um, and complete enough, it will bring genuine relief from suffering. Every time you look at the image, you you have a sense of that underlying peace that that could be there. That's kind of how insight works. So you'll something that you'll know for yourself. So you look and look, and finally you see it. And when you see something that you know you won't be able to unsee, that is a Dharma insight. Richard's laughing because he remembers CRTs. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so um, then we get on to the second definition of realize, right? To make real. Make it real. Yeah, make it happen. Manifest it in some way. So awakening is not just some kind of Big Bang experience that instantly changes everything? Well, it could be, but it's very rare. Uh, instead, more likely, we have to work at it, uh, kind of gradually setting up the conditions for the mind and the heart to let go. Um, and there are many descriptions of how this process goes, you know, some from the suttas, some the the original teachings of the Buddha, some from more modern teachers. You'll hear next week about the Eightfold Path, which is the main method that the Buddha taught, the main path that he taught. But I want to name very briefly a description that I heard from a modern teacher named Martine Batchelor. Uh, and I'm, I'm sort of going to paraphrase and summarize it a bit. But she talks about how we tend to let go of habitual mental patterns of dukkha. That's the phrase I'm using, habitual mental patterns of dukkha. And so these are things that you would know. Examples are things like maybe we have a habit of interrupting people. And we frequently, you know, we frequently do that. Or we have a habit of social fear. We, we get anxious when we're in big groups. Or we have a habit of getting angry easily and snapping at, at people. We tend to fly off the rails pretty quickly. So there are four stages of how we might let go of these patterns, which brings suffering. These are dukkha patterns. These are unpleasant patterns. So the first stage, which we can be in effortlessly, is that we blindly do the pattern. <laughs> we have no clue that it's happening. We're completely ignorant that we are constantly interrupting people, for example. Ignorance is not bliss <laughs> in this practice. Ignorance is not bliss. So we do what well, we're doing our mindfulness practice, we do meditation, and suddenly we realize, oh, we see that we have a certain pattern. Yay! This is better than not seeing. But um, we tend to see it at first, we tend to see it afterward. You know, like we realize, oh my gosh, I, I interrupted my friend 14 times in that conversation that we just had coffee, and you're driving home while you're realizing this. And so, you know, you didn't notice it in the moment. Um, but uh, so that's the second step. But then the third is that you catch it in the middle. You know, you realize that you're about to interrupt, but you're you're not fast enough to catch it, and you do. <laughs> and so it's like, Ugh. so you watch yourself playing out this pattern, or and this is a very painful stage. And you start thinking, why did I start mindfulness practice? I didn't want to know all this about how my mind works, but you're actually getting closer and closer to the moment, right? You're noticing it sooner and sooner. And then there's this magic moment where you feel yourself of wanting to interrupt and you don't. You choose some other path. I'm just using the example of interrupting, but, you know, substitute your mental pattern. And you might get caught again the next time. You might forget. But once you've cut through that first time, you were strong enough that first time 
that pattern is on the way out. It might take another 10,000 times of seeing it, but nonetheless, um, in, in a sense, you were free in that moment. The pattern didn't overwhelm your mind. So these are the stages that we go through. It's sort of a small, everyday version of how the cessation of dukkha works. We very gradually find that we can let go of a pattern. It doesn't hold us anymore. And we realize, you know, the craving that went with, I got to get my word in right now, that's gone. And so the dukkha of that pattern is gone also. And these little everyday versions set us up to understand the bigger releases that the Buddha was pointing to in his Dharma teachings about how we can free the heart from really, really deep attachments that we have. So keep at it. <laughs> keep looking for the gaps and little, little releases, looking for the patterns, and just keep aiming to manifest behavior that is somehow free of craving and clinging. And that is the path toward more and more freedom. And I would love to pass it on to you. Maybe before before I say anything, I just want to give you guys a chance to, if you have a question for Kim, anything that you would like her to clarify or restate. You don't have to, of course, just an opportunity. Great. Uh, yeah, I could ask something. Um, so the the cling, I, I think you had mentioned uh, the, the uh, was it craving? I think that's the word that's coming to my mind. So what manifests to, to go backwards? What manifests the craving, or where do these come from? It almost seems like they might be uh, sort of ingrained or reinforced. Or oh, great question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so you're varying degrees and. That's such a wonderful question. I want to um, just acknowledge that this is actually how the Buddha investigated also. He kept looking back. You know, he's like, okay, there's suffering. Why is there suffering? And eventually figured out, oh, it's because of craving or clinging. And he did keep asking that question. So um, in the kind of classical teachings, the Buddha would point toward reactivity to things that are coming into our sense doors. So we see things and react to them. We hear things and react to them. We're mostly reacting to kind of the impact that they make on us. And these, this is very habitual stuff that we've conditioned and built up over our life, is that certain sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and thoughts irritate us or excite us or scare us. And that reaction is where the craving comes from. Because then we say, i got to get more of that because I like it, or... Um, this is irritating or painful to me, I've got to push it away. And that's the seed for um, grasping, pushing away, clinging, wanting, reacting, etc. And if you trace that back farther, how did that happen? Well, it has to do with even deeper tendencies in the mind to how our, basically how our nervous system was conditioned. Tanya may want to add to that. Not right now, but that was great, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You wanted to? Yeah, I. Um, sorry. Yeah, uh, I feel like I'm having a hard time um, 
understanding like because you were talking about how like ignorance is is not bliss and being aware of like patterns and just yeah uh, you know things that um, are socially conditioned and all this stuff is is it's a good thing which I know it is, but then <laughs> sometimes it's hard to, especially when it's something that is out of your control, like other people's um, beliefs or values or just, um, you know, anything that's out of your own control, then there's this feeling of like, well, now I know that this exists and it's hurting me in some way, but then it's also out of my control. And maybe I was better off just not knowing it existed. Um, I don't know if I'm phrasing this well, but I guess it's hard for me to understand like how to um, let go of or like not do anything about something that is now like in your awareness and you can't it's out of your control. Yeah. You want me? You want to do that? Or want me to? I'll offer something, and I have the feeling you might too. Um, I guess I would say that there isn't ever really anything that's completely um, like the ignorance part. If you just didn't know about it, doesn't mean it's not influencing your life and your behavior. It's actually subterranean. So it's still, if you have some pattern that you don't know about, it is driving your behavior and it is leading to dukkha. And the only way to end it is to know it and then release it according to these teachings. So there isn't really, um, there isn't really, you know, out of the picture (laughs) kinds of things like that. Yeah. Go ahead. So I'm going to see if I can... um address what I, I think something I think of when you share so let's let me think you know it could be sexism um, so um, I become aware that um, I'm around a bunch of people and they have um, really fixed ideas about what women are and aren't capable of uh, what they are and aren't for where they're good where they're not and it doesn't fit with my own experience of myself or how I want to be seen. So when I become aware of that, um, it, there's a whole phase of it being extremely painful. I might be angry, hurt. I have to go through a whole process, right, of starting to see it, recognizing it. And think that this practice, one of the things that it can teach us is that over time, we actually can be in the presence of sexism and get free of our own habits of internalizing the sexism, of reinforcing or automatically reacting to the sexism, that we can focus on recognizing the pattern and our pattern of reacting to it. And, and that um, as we get better at not reacting, 
we actually are probably going to get better at dismantling, <laughs> at reconstructing our relationships or creating other spaces and things like that. But there's, there's two parts. There's the pattern of sexism, and then there's the pattern of our internal response to the sexism. And both need to be addressed, but we often are more effective at addressing the outer pattern after we've worked on our, our own relationship to it. And sometimes we stop going to a place because there's too much sexism and we can't exist in it without wilting or enraging, right? Um, so to me, there's two, two parts to look at here. And uh, in the practice, and for me, this looking at my own response to the source of my suffering is incredibly, incre- like there's so much freedom that can be found when I shift my relationship and see the sexism as for what it is. I'll stop there. It looks like you had a question or wanted to say something. Yeah, this might be kind of basic question, but it's good around reactivity in general. Yeah. And um, I am, I, I definitely am very <laughs> reactive in situations like that. Um, and I guess, does being non-reactive mean kind of having an attitude of like live and let live? Like, or is it like in the moment you're not reactive and then you kind of like take time to figure out how to react the right way? Yeah, so um, for me, if I stay with this example, it would be uh, the reactivity I'm going to talk about for myself, my internal, would be that I don't feel shame anymore. That that's my own internal. I cling to the idea of sexism. I get caught up in the idea that I'm less than. I believe it on some level, and then I feel like I'm less than. I feel shame. That's my own dukkha pattern, and I'm relating to the becoming or not wanting to become of this image, right? And when I'm free from my own response to that external idea... I don't get. Sh- I don't feel shame anymore. I actually feel completely fine. I see that somebody is seeing me with delusion, and so I feel like I don't have to. I get to choose what I want to do. I get to choose, like freely, to how I want to respond if I want to respond. I get to, like, I, ha- I have the capacity in my reactivity and my shame. I don't have the same capacity. I'm struggling internally with my own oppression, <laughs> internalized oppression, which causes, you know, it creates, it activates the, the threat system. It's hard to think, hard to speak, hard to stand upright hard to look at somebody in the eye. All of these things are happening when I have internal reactivity. When I see through that, there's no internal reactivity. It's, it, there's a solidity, 
a, a you know a clear clarity a freedom i don't i am not determined who i am what i am isn't affected internally by how they see me they may still see me the way they have it That's super helpful. Thank you. Yeah. And I think, um, so one of my things that I think is really helpful, too, to help us, I see this a lot, that when I'm working with people on areas where they're feeling dukkha, a lot of times we stay looking at what we don't want or what we want. So there's the sexism. And then there's our response to the sexism. And the response is dukkha. We'll call it dukkha, right? If we're having reactivity. And one of the ways that I help myself get disenchanted with um, my reactivity, actually, is to understand and be able to move my awareness between this is sexism and this is the cluster of all the things it means. And then this is what it feels like in me when I'm reacting to the existence of suffering and taking it personally. Does that make sense? And that's the feeling. That's the dukkha. That's the str- like the stress, the pain. So one of the things that really helps me kind of disentangle all of this is to separate out what the object is from what the experience of dukkha is. Because if I keep looking over here, the mind keeps getting caught up in all the stories about how this should not be happening, how wrong it is, how oppressive it is. And so it's hard to stay and let the dukkha teach me. Like we learn that it hurts if we push too hard on our pen or touch a hot stove, we learn, right? Well, we, we're going to learn from what we're clinging, are clinging by noticing the dukkha. Is that making, am I clear? Am I staying, like, very clear? Okay. So that's one thing that can be helpful. So for you, like, when you're, if you, if you imagine if you're struggling with sexism, how do you shift your awareness from external to internal, the manifestation of sexism and then your response, reactivity to the sexism. And then the reactivity, you have to be careful with when you pay attention to it because it can be like, well, that's wrong. Well, yes, it is wrong. And then there's this engagement with the thoughts around the sexism. But don't miss that there's a feeling, right, the dukkha in there when we're reacting instead of clearly just seeing um, and not getting caught up in identification. Yeah? You guys following me? Yeah? Oh, yeah, I, I follow. Okay. I was wondering if I could chi- chime in a little bit on yeah. my own experience. Sometimes w- with reactivity, I found that I've, um, when I do respond, I put my foot in my mouth, and I've learned that it's a skill to respond appropriately or accordingly, um, my own experience. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's you feeling... Good, right there, right? Okay. So let's see, where am I for time? Uh, Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Kim. (laughs) Um, So so I wanted to name that anyway about kind of 
it, when some of the things that can kind of get in the way of our noticing the ending of suffering is because we we're we're still clinging and we're not we're we're looking we're not looking at the right things or we're kind of still in reactivity. So in the first class, I talked about dukkha as like the experience can be thought of like as a compass, like noticing and tuning into the existence or absence of dukkha is is like referencing a compass. When there is dukkha, you can sort of imagine the needle is pointing toward more suffering if we keep going this way. And when there is an absence of dukkha, it's like, okay, oh, you know, I'm going, it's okay. Like I'm, I'm moving in the right direction. I'm letting go. I'm stepping in the present moment in a way that is present. But when we're going through our life, we have to remember to check the compass. Just like if we're going on a trip, we have to keep paying attention to the street signs. Or if we're hiking, we need to keep noticing what direction we're going in. And it's very easy to forget to check and get caught up in driving, like missing your exit on a freeway. So one of the things that's really helpful is to keep checking in, noticing, how am I feeling now? What am I aware of now? And when you notice that there's ease and well-being, oh, pause. (laughs) Like, take it in. Because the mind has this... Kim was referencing this earlier, this negativity bias. The mind is, you know, programmed to pay attention to potential threats. Well, that's how we survived. So species, it was really important. Not so important now in the same ways. It's connected to a literal life and death survival system, and now it's much more about all kinds of ridiculous little silly things. So in order to balance our attention so that we're tuning in to the ends of suffering or to the moments of well-being, we need to be noticing, checking in. And then you'll notice that your mind gets bored really quickly. It's like, it, it, it's really just like, oh yeah, okay, next and you sometimes you'll be talking to somebody and you'll see them do that. You'll go, oh, look, you're doing better. You know, that's good. That, that part got better. And then you'll, they'll come back with you to you immediately. Yeah, but this and this and that might happen. You'll see it around you all the time. You know, uh, things are going well in your, your art project or in your work or in your writing. And then if you stop and you reflect on it or something, the mind's going to be so quick to start to predict something negative, right? A criticism, or it could be better, or I should do more. (laughs) So, like those moments of letting go, those moments of, oh, it's okay. (gasps) It's like, oh, breathe right there. Like, can you expand into it? Open into it. Breathe into it. Like the idea of savoring. And this is in neuroscience, this is exactly what they tell you to do that shows your brain changing, is this idea of savoring. So just like you might savor a nice piece of chocolate or some other wonderful thing, a sip of water, whatever, just that feeling of letting it, it's like letting the whole body take it in.
And it requires really a pausing, a staying with. And then noticing the impact. So not just staying, but then tuning in. Like feeling, letting your body sort of ride the feeling, the impact. Because when we do stop and notice a moment of ease, there can be a quieting, a resting that starts to happen. And we want to rush to fill the space. And this is about You know, this third noble truth is about receiving the space. It's like a gift, receiving the gift, being willing to receive. Some of us aren't so comfortable receiving gifts, right? So we have to practice that too. Another thing um, that can be helpful for us is to start just tracking endings, little endings of things, just start to help the mind tune in because it's that leaping forward thing. It's always kind of anticipating. So you can start to reorient the mind toward the ending of things and feel into the ending of things. And that sets the mind up also to be more open to and interested and curious about even sort of those moments of ease or things ending and settling in my work with people in addiction, they'll talk about having cravings. And they can talk about having the feeling that it's like they think they're having a craving all day long every day. That's how it sort of ends up for them. So I ask them to time their cravings. To literally pay attention to when they end. And write it down. And, and they start to go, oh, There actually are many moments I'm not having these cravings. But they all they could focus on was the moments they did have them. So we start to retrain our mind to be more oriented and interested in this these little moments, pockets of letting go, of not being caught up in wanting or not wanting something. So that feels like a pause. I'll just, you know, let's see if there's other thoughts. Kim, if you want to add anything, you guys have any questions? No? So clear. What does it, I guess I'll just ask this question. What does it feel like when you have a moment of letting go? Do you know what it feels like? Um, I guess for me to repeat a phrase, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I'll notice that uh, I'd let it go and then um, either emotionally or just sort of logically, like, well, something will come up, you know, either the next minute or next day. Um, But it is nice to have that sort of... um, that uh, breath of fresh air and just uh, enjoy it <laughs> for the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing is very common, right, which is a- a- almost a mistrust. Knowing it's going to pass makes it almost something we want to dismiss. There can be a habit of that, or I can't trust it. So we start to protect ourselves from it a little bit. 
And so it can be useful to um, lean into the, those moments a little. Well, what, what's it like? To, okay, let me hang out with this though right now. But it really does take some. It's like um, leaning into. We really kind of do have to lean into it. Yes. Okay. Breathe and hold. Our our eyes are going to dart away. It's crazy. The mind, the eyes, the body will start to impulsively move on. So it's it's a it's a conscious thing to so, sort of help us learn how help the nervous system really learn how to just okay. Well, what does it feel like then if I just enjoy this for the moment? I know, yeah, it's going to pass. And how nourishing is it when you take it in? You want to say anything? Um, I was going to say, I definitely understood and related to what you were talking about, about like when one thing passes, you immediately go like, oh, well, I have like 30 other things to worry about, so it doesn't matter. So I'm definitely going to try to lean into those moments where it's like, oh, I'm not worrying about this as much. And something I do um, that was recommended to me is like if I'm having like a very anxious thought or something I'm stressed out about, I like type it out on my notes app. And then maybe I'll look at it like a week later and be like, "Uh, I don't really care about this (laughs) anymore. And I'll like delete it. Um, But I don't think I'm like fully appreciating deleting that text and being like yeah I have gotten past this and maybe this was some like future scenario I was stressing out about but now I feel like it's not that important and it's not going to have the biggest impact and so I can let it go Um, I think that's huge to stop with that moment and I just take, reflect back on how different the mind feels with that thought now, how it changed. It's like, oh my God, I was gripped. And now I don't even, it's like meaningless to me. Like there's such a profound shift. And to let yourself really get disenchanted, really feel the ex- imp- impact of disenchantment with that thought, the lack of clinging around it is huge. Huge. This is such a great, this is such a great place on the path, really. Such a great practice to start to be like as interested in the moments of freedom as we are in, you know, the dukkha, which we is really, really helpful companion, actually. But the ease, don't miss it. It's like so precious. I um I'm remembering just came this anecdote came to mind just while we were talking about how hard it is sometimes to trust or even recognize ease or in you know tranquility or calmness or freedom um, just maybe as a comparison so that you'll realize that this mindfulness practice really gives us a, a gift of being able to be with it 
this is a long time ago, maybe over 15 years ago, I was teaching a Qigong class, and I had a number of people. It was a beginner class, and um, we did a certain we did some standing meditation and some simple moves. And you know, Qigong is very much about balancing and calming the energies of the body. And by the end of the class, like most people were feeling like you know really stable and amazed that their bodies had these alive, sort of alive but calm feeling, except for this one woman who was got really agitated and she came up to me at the end of class and said, do you teach this class at a different time ever? And I said, well, I know not really, but you know, it's like I didn't know what she was asking. And it took me a while of like asking her, is that she had felt calm, she had actually gotten calm like everybody else, and had freaked out because of it. She had never felt tranquility. She had never felt calm. And it was like she thought she was falling asleep. She thought she was fainting. She thought it was because it was dinner time and she hadn't had enough food. You know, it's like she could she could land she could not land on this experience of actually of having just calmed down because of this practice. She didn't have mindfulness. You know, she didn't know that. And so I think you know, I was quite naive at that time, and I, um, I didn't quite realize that some people really have a difficult time touching this. That really woke me up to how hard it can be to have this experience. So I feel like both of you are already there, really, in terms of being able to see this. And just, yeah, just encouragement to continue with the... Um, the sense of presence, of calm, of openness, for exactly the reasons that Tanya said, is that those that gives us the freedom of choice about what we want to do. It doesn't mean that we're just going to become passive or not care or just say whatever, however the world is, is fine. Maybe it isn't, but we can, we'll be able to act uh, much more freely, much more effectively and compassionately uh, from a place of freedom in our own heart. Yeah. Another um, practice place can be actually when you're meditating, and you you know you, you, there's something called bell mind, right, where you can start to get very fixated on when the bell's going to ring, and which is a form of clinging, right? You're like grasping on to the end of the the bell and. You'll go. You, people will go through a phase often where, as soon as the bell rings, they're like, "Oh, you know," they they just they're done. They're like gone already. And so, it can be really powerful to start to say, "Okay, I know I'm, there's bell. I'm anticipating. I'm anxious, but I'm not going to break my posture right away. I'm going to stay for a moment with being with this meditation beyond the bell." And just like notice, just notice what that feels like. And the pressure, you you can start to see how the pressure that builds up will just start to dissipate. Because we've been practicing clinging to getting to the end. And then we start to practice not clinging and it changes. And there starts to be greater capacity to just, to, to rest, to be with and to be more at ease during the whole meditation, eventually, you know, or on and off. Yeah. So, so this is actually something you can practice. You can choose 
places and time, like um, I've done it when I'm driving, when I stop signs. Like there's the habit to, to want to hurry and to practice pausing, right? And then, oh, you can feel the absence right there, right? There's just like, oh, it's kind of nice not to just be driven by the clinging, the, this grasping, this energy of chasing. Yeah. So small little ways can help you start to tune into it. So the Buddha's claim was that you can reach the end of all dukkha and experience life with no stickiness, no clinging, no craving. He called this nibbana, which literally means going out, you know, like a flame, all the flame of our craving and grasping. If you imagine that as a fire, it's like, phew, I could just go out. What do you think? What do you think of that? Does it sound possible? Does it sound inspiring? Impossible? Never thought about it before. It's a pretty, like, um, if I can use, I don't know if this word's allowed anymore. It's like a pretty ballsy claim, don't you think? What do you think of this? I don't know. when (laughs) When you said that, I was like, that seems possible for like people who are like deep into this kind of practice and maybe even like have let go of all um, you know like material I don't know I don't know it just yeah it sounds like just way beyond what I could imagine happening for me. I think in theory it makes sense. Um, it takes me back to like some of my philosophy classes that I had to take and whatnot. But um, I, I don't think I'm anywhere near that uh, <laughs> uh, capability. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I just wanted to ask. Cause it, sometimes we don't really come up against, we don't really think about what the Buddha was really saying. And actually I noticed that both of you said it seems possible actually you might be interested to know that there are um, groups or uh, sometimes Buddhist groups or strands of Buddhism get into the idea that it's been too long since the historical Buddha and, and awakening is no longer possible. So I see you don't, you're not affected by that. That's nice. doesn't mean we, can, we, we should think, oh, tomorrow is probably going to happen for me. You know, sure, it's a, it's a big process, but I love that you both thought it was you know, potential. That's actually really big. Mm-hmm. Do you feel, I'm, I'm curious, um, do you have a better sense of what it might be like to be without craving? That it doesn't mean that you don't care. It doesn't mean you give in to everything. It doesn't mean that you don't do anything. But can you feel more into the sense of freedom that might be there? I think I have a, a, a sense, a new sense that um, it will be okay. Um, whatever happens, uh, you know, small problem, big problem, or a, a big win, small win, tomorrow will be another day and mm, another another page, and it'll be okay. Mm. Um, 
then to, to what degree or what skill level you're able to, uh, to roll with the punches or, uh, to have a positive outlook. Um, I think probably that's where I'm at right now is, uh, it'll be okay. Um, I feel like, to be honest, I haven't given a lot of thought to like my daily actions and like how much it relates to clinging, which is probably something I'll do now, but, <laughs> um, like even just sitting here, I'm thinking about like all the stuff I constantly tell myself or that's told to me. Like, for example, like a few years ago, like I don't know, I was like, oh, by this, I know a lot of people do this, but they're like, oh, by this age, I'm going to achieve these things. And then when I hit this age, I'm going to get married. When I hit this age, I'm, and it's like, I mean, I'm obviously <laughs> not on track for any of that stuff that I decided for myself when I was like 18 or something but um it now makes me think like oh I was kind of clinging to this idea of like things having to happen at a certain time and stuff like that and I just feel like there's probably so many areas in my life that I am doing that and probably needs more thought and recognition well, take one of those examples that you clearly have kind of done some work around letting go. And how did it feel to not be so caught up in that idea? Was was it was there anything good about going, "Oh, I don't actually have to do that?" Um, I don't know if I've fully gotten past it. I think I still have moments of like when I see other people doing certain things or achieving certain things in certain timelines, I'm like, maybe I'm behind and maybe I'm failing at life. And, you know, um, but sometimes I do have moments of being like, eh, who cares? Like <laughs> if it happens for me now or in 10 years, I don't know if it's going to make that big of a difference. And it definitely helps with the stress and anxiety and just, um, being okay with that stuff, yeah. 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 Well, I'm thinking about how um, when you each said, yeah, that seems possible, but I don't know about for me. That's such a perfect setup for next week, when because uh, <laughs> the the fourth noble truth is there's a path, and essentially says there's a path from here to there. <laughs> and because our first thought when we hear the third noble truth can be, yeah, right. Maybe for some people, or maybe theoretically, philosophically, but um, you know, the the Buddha was also clear that. You know, there is, yeah, there's a way, there is a way to get from here to there. It's not just an ideal. So that's, I find the fourth truth actually one of the most inspiring. The third is good. It's quite good. (laughs) But the fourth makes it real in a sense. It's like how you actually do make it real. It does involve change of life some way certainly a change of what we're how we're seeing things but yeah 
Final questions before we do dedication of merit or comments, reflections? I, I think recently with the, the pandemic and seeing the fragility of life, it's probably given me a new perspective on what's important and what's, you know, not important. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of wrestle with um, letting go of the clinging because I, I think, well, some of these intricacies make me who I am. And and um, it, it, it kind of, um, what evolution do I want to sort of um, fine-tune and and you know what things do I want to sort of keep of myself? Um, but it is a it is kind of a an interesting topic to sort of see how the environment and time around me has made me have a new perspective on things. Yeah, what you started out saying with the the pandemic has uh, highlighted for you what's important. It's it's said that there are these heavenly messengers of, um, it's kind of a funny word, but of aging, illness, and death. And at some point, I mean, these are things that are real for humans. And at some point we wake up to them because they come to us. But if, if we're more wise, we can even see them in others or see them outside in society and be inspired by them. It's like, yeah, these things are real. And, and therefore, what is important to me? How do I want to live? How do I want to manifest? And then, yeah, there are questions of, is this working for me? Is this um, aligned with how I see my own spirituality? And that's something that we discern as we actually engage with the practices. I wouldn't worry too much about whether certain aspects of yourself are going to change or stay the same. Uh, The Dharma... The Dharma takes all the best stuff that's useful and uh, just enhances it to help eliminate the parts of you that are clinging. It'll work. (laughs) Um, I was just going to say that I feel like this session was kind of timely for me and this idea of like, or I guess I've just been like, reflecting a lot on my reaction to things and like why I react that way and it's kind of like coming full circle with like maybe I'm clinging to something and um, I can also see how that reaction affects um, how I relate to others and um, yeah it's just something that I I think is it's, it's helpful to um, explore that more. That's great. Well, it's been it's so nice to have you both here. It's just so wonderful to have you both so engaged. It's wonderful. So I'm glad you're feeling it's good timing. Yeah. So the let's do our dedication of merit, and um, you know the idea is to share the benefit of our practice and with the theme of this third noble truth, the end of suffering. Are there any beings that you would like to think of to bring to mind that we would like to wish 
have the experience of suffering ending? Anyone you want to name? Absolutely, no pressure, just give me space. So may all beings everywhere, without exception, experience the end of suffering. Thank you.